Um, so just remember that it, as as the wise man Yael Sosky once said, the pendulum does swing both ways. Wow, I love that guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting on your dials across North America on the Big Talker 106.7 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina, and up in Canada on Saga 960 AM in the broader Peel region, Ontario. It's a pleasure to be here at the mic. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from the middle European uh, continent city of Vienna, and I'm joined as always by my colleague David Clement in Toronto, Ontario. David, how goes it? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. Ontario has moved the timeline up um, in regards to the next stage. So we may be able to do things like go to gyms and eat inside restaurants and all of that fun stuff that uh, if you're in the GTA, you may not have been you may not have been able to do for over 13 months. Um, so very exciting. I think at this point, Ontario, Ontario qualifies as the locale or jurisdiction that has had the strictest lockdowns, at least between North America and Europe. You think that's right? Yeah. I think with the exception of Australia and New Zealand, yeah, uh, Europe, Europe and North America, it's, it's definitely the most locked down city. Um, so I can, I can only liberal democratic orders. Yeah. Australia takes the cake. Yeah, the lock. Well, yes, and and then the lockdown in Wuhan, like when you're welding people's doors shut to keep them in their houses, that's uh, that's another level. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's it, it's been a tough slog for business owners in the GTA. So hopefully, this is a bit of a a glimpse at what life can be like moving forward. Although I will say, uh, some of the COVID screening now. I understand what they're doing while at the same time, it's like there's a totally better way to do this. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. So um, they allow outdoor fitness classes now. Uh, So I've been going to a couple and for each person, they got to do the whole, like, have you been out of the country? Have you been in contact with anyone? Like the full, like nine question checklist. And I just looked at the person kind of running the registration and was like, well, why isn't the first question, are you two de- or are you two weeks beyond your second dose of the vaccine? Like that should be the first question. And then after that, there are no more questions. Um, so it seems like there's a bit of a lag in terms of things picking up to the fact that um, the vaccine exists. And now we have more people who have two doses and, um, so I hope that there's just some recognition of that when we do get allowed to go back into restaurants and go back into gyms where, like, if if you can, maybe you require proof or not, I don't know. But um, if you are two weeks um, post-second dose, you don't have to deal with some of the headaches that, that are still going on. But I don't know. We'll see. Is it? Is there You're acting to- as if bureaucracy is smart and efficient <laughs> and can respond quickly to changing dynamics. Yeah, quite naive <laughs> of me given the line of work that we're in and how many times we go up against really really dumb regulators. So, 
Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so speaking about someone who goes against dumb regulators, uh, we do have a guest in our next segment that will come on. Uh, David, you're able to arrange this. Why don't you uh, get our, our listeners' ears perked up as to who we'll be speaking to and what about? Yeah, it's, um, I'm very excited. We have uh, Pierre Poliev, the member of parliament for Carleton, um, on the show. We'll be chatting about a variety of different subjects, ranging from the, the federal government's plastic policies to inflation. Uh, very excited. I won't tease out too much more of this, but very excited to have, to have Pierre on the show um, because more often than not, he's usually the first person to talk about a pressing issue before it becomes national news. Um, he's He's been on quite a, a streak of um, really having his, his ear to the... Uh, his ear to the pulse here in, in regards to what some of the big issues are going to be next. Um, and so, yeah, it would be great to get his thoughts on some of these issues. Definitely a bellwether, um, one of our kind of more admired uh, politicians throughout uh, the Anglosphere, I would say. So I, that'll be very interesting, uh, certainly someone who has turned a lot of heads in media. And um, until until then, David, we kind of have free reign and we kind of got something going on in the, in the hemisphere of uh, <laughs> of the Western Hemisphere. It seems as if there's another revolution going down in Cuba, good sir. Yes. So I don't know if you've heard yes, this song, David. Is. Have you heard this um, song, by the way? No, I have not. So this is Patria y Vida. So this is a, a kind of hip-hop song that's come out. I think it came out earlier this year and has turned into a kind of anthem for many of uh, the dissidents and protesters in Cuba. Uh, Patria y Vida is homeland and life. It is a turn on the phrase used by the Communist Party down there in Cuba that is normally homeland or death, o muerte. So uh, this rap song is now, I got up to 6 million views on YouTube, and uh, that slogan, Patria y Vida, uh, being... Uh, part of the chance for the crowds in Cuba. And I think it's an interesting topic, David, because it's something that uh, both you and I traveled to Cuba together. You've been there, uh, I guess, more often than not, uh, more often than me. And it's a place that really has one of the more repressive regimes in the world, and it could be all crumbling mm -hmm. down. So kind of set the scene for, for the listeners who are not as well attuned to uh, what's happening there on the, uh, the island of Cuba. Yeah, so essentially there are people taking to the streets in protest, um, and there are two narratives. Um, one of the narratives, which is largely the false narrative, um, is that people are protesting because they don't have access to vaccines uh, for COVID-19. The more accurate description of what's going on is that people are protesting because they don't have access to basic medical care. Um, so there are drug shortages for things like standard antibiotics. Um, and so the Cuban people are taking to the streets, which is um, incredibly rare, um, because this is a country that um, will detain and lock up uh, dissidents. Um, and so... We have here, for the first time in a long time, 
um, a kind of concentrated effort to push back against um, the communist rule in Cuba. And we don't know where it will go. Um, we don't know what the outcome will be. But it's certainly probably one of the more important instances of political unrest in Cuba in the last 15 years or so. Um, so it's exciting for anyone who hopes that one day the people of Cuba can enjoy some of the um, individual liberties that we have in Canada and the United States. Um, whether or not it, it ends up going that direction, I think that still is up in the air. But um, that could be encouraging if finally the the people of Cuba are afforded some of the basic freedoms and rights that you and I are um, in, in the countries that we live in. And so um, we will have to wait and see, but it is certainly an interesting development. Yeah, it's great to see. There's a headline here from the Washington Post that I think, I mean, doesn't necessarily sum it up, but it gives you some idea as to a catalyst for this. Cubans, broken by pandemic and fueled by social media, confront their police state. And the article goes into uh, bigger detail about how social media has actually allowed people to connect much more. Uh, you know, all those terrible social media companies that we need to break up and provide no value, right, David? Uh, uh, that people have been actually sharing <laughs> stories, they've been able to share any of their situations, whether it be economic depression, not being enough food um, at the stores, not getting their, you know, different rations of food. I mean, this has been a, a centrally controlled state since the revolution in 1959. And that's what that rap song uh, is kind of about, is saying like, hey, your revolution uh, was, you know, this attempt to remake Cuba. You remade it all right, but it's been a total failure for all of us. And uh, there's even a part in there, David, that oh, I thought yeah. Canadians would appreciate. It says in there that uh, basically the Cuban government uh, tries to advertise paradise in Veradero while mothers cry for their children in Havana. I mean, that's a pretty fair way. It's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty... I mean, you and I have been to Veradero. Um, it is certainly quite an enjoyable place as a tourist. Um, but if you talk to the people who work, and this is to just kind of highlight the mess of a country Cuba is, um, it's very strange. If you were to go to most countries um, and you were to talk to, let's say, your server at a restaurant, um, it's highly unlikely that your server at a restaurant uh, has a PhD in math and quit a job at the university, the local university, to be a server. Um, but if you're in any of the resorts in Cuba, that is like the common practice. Um, so the people who are servers at resorts are the most educated um, and most accomplished people really in the country. And the reason for that is because that's where they get exposure to outside um, money. Um, that's where they have the opportunity to earn tips. That's where they have the opportunity to maybe trade things um, with tourists who are coming to Cuba. And so the economy is so backwards that you would have someone who was, let's say, a surgeon um, quit their job immediately once offered a serving job at a resort. 
Um, and so it, a doctor of mixology. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. And um, I want to play two clips very quickly on this because I think it relates a lot to policies set by either government in Ottawa or Washington uh, related to the Cubans. Um, but but first, I, I wanted to play a small clip of, um, I would say, somewhat of a freedom-friendly governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, who discusses this, talks about it. Uh, he was asked, uh, what about the, the Cubans and what's happening with the protests there and what his thoughts were? And uh, he does not have favorable words for this narrative that it's all about the pandemic and uh, vaccines has everything to do with their crumbling system. Uh, If we're understanding the stakes, understanding why people are are revolting uh, and we're siding with the Cuban people, uh, you you could probably get a lot of the policies right at that point. If you go into it thinking that they're upset about a vaccine shortage or they're upset that there's not enough groceries in the store, uh, but they just want uh, the regime to change a few things around and kind of rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic, if that's what you think, then you clearly have no hope of of getting a, a favorable outcome here. So that's one clip uh, kind of responding to the media framing, uh, which I think is good. And then more of the policy angle, we have, um, I believe, is the head of the Department of Homeland Security. He comes out and gives a message uh, to the Cubans who might be protesting and might be angling towards coming to the United States, uh, which is uh, but 90 miles by boat. Allow me to be clear. If you take to the sea, you will not come to the United States. The time is never right to attempt migration by sea. To those who risk their lives doing so, this risk is not worth taking. Again, I repeat, do not risk your life attempting to enter the United States illegally. We know that the policy of wet foot, dry foot applied to Cubans who arrive in the United States has uh, been Uh, repealed since Barack Obama in 2017. Uh, So he's getting that fresh warning there about that. Uh, What What, what do you think about that, David, in our last minute? There are a lot of things that the Obama administration did, but I would say in the top five of the most cruel would have to be getting rid of that policy. Um, You're talking about people fleeing a truly repressive regime, um, largely to escape to a community in South Florida that welcomes them with open arms. Um, And so, yeah, it's super depressing to hear them double down on that. Um, I would love to see them bring that back. Um, That would, I think, go... That would be a much better approach. I'd love to see them end the blockade as well, but um, that may not happen in the near future. So we'll have to revisit some of this after the break and and, uh, stay tuned for... Uh, when we come back. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker FM. Uh, It is with great pleasure that I introduce our next guest. He is the Member of Parliament for Carleton. He served as both the Minister of Democratic Reform and Minister of Employment and Social Development under Prime Minister Stephen Harper and is currently the critic for jobs and industry. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, Pierre Polyev. Good to be with you. Great, great. Well, you've been um, 
hammering away at some pretty key consumer topics, whether it be um, plastic policy or inflation and uh, all sorts of good stuffs. But I figured we'd start on we start on plastics because recently I saw a rather cheeky video um, of you asking someone testifying um, or providing comment to to uh, committee what they would do or how the meeting would continue if you actually banned those plastic headsets like the one you're wearing right now. And so what's your take on what the government's doing, the SEPA toxic designation, the ban of certain products? Is this the right way to go or is there a better way for us to, to deal with plastic waste? No and yes. No, it's not the right way to go. And yes, there is a better way. A uh, quick recap, though, of that committee engagement. Uh, we were uh, having uh, hearings on the green recovery um, at industry committee and uh, an environmental activist came on and said she wanted to ban plastic products. Well, I happened to know what kind of headset she was wearing because all members, uh, all witnesses and MPs are issued the very same headset. They're mailed to their houses so that they can speak clearly enough for the French English transla translators to hear them. And I know this uh, headset, which I'm wearing now and she was wearing then, is made almost exclusively of plastic, with some exceptions, but it could not exist without plastic. And therefore, she could not be giving the very testimony to ban plastic that she was giving uh, through that headset uh, if her ban was in place. Now, it seems like a sort of a cheeky gotcha moment, but it's actually an illustrative of a larger truth. Uh, and that is uh, that uh, while plastics, for reasons I don't fully understand, have to have a bad reputation, uh, they are absolutely essential for our way of life. Uh, in the last year uh, of the COVID pandemic, uh, we have needed plastics more than ever. Uh, we're all just getting vaccinated. Well, the uh, the um, needles that uh, the vials that contain our not the vials, but the um, the tubes that contain the original um, vaccine through uh, are made of plastic. Uh, so too are the those those compression buttons made of plastic. Um, the you know, we're all having those pictures of tape, uh, you know, of the uh, Band-Aid or tape over uh, our uh, entry point and uh, the tape and the Band-Aids require plastic. Um, so, so you've got uh, EpiPens that require plastic. Uh, there are plastic in certain types of face masks. Uh, and I could go on and on and on. Uh, in other words, we could not have got through the pandemic without plastic. Uh, and the idea that we would drive plastic production out of Canada means that if there were ever another pandemic, we would be even more dependent on the West rest of the world to, to supply us with uh, essentials. You know, plastics are durable, they're hygienic, they're moldable, and they're one of the most recyclable uh, uh, things on planet Earth uh, because they can simply be melted down and remolded into something different. Uh, small additions and subtractions of chemical compounds can alter their chemistry and make a new product. Uh, so as the market demands one go from one thing to another, you can take the same uh, chemistry and convert it into something different for another use. Uh, that is not true of almost all other products. So what we should be doing is encouraging Canada to become a super hub of plastic recycling. Um, and uh, you can basically reuse those molecules again and again and again and again for literally a generation. So our great-great-grandkids are still using the same 
plastic molecules that we uh, had manufactured in this generation. That is uh, something you can't say about almost any other product. So um, in other words, let's become a, a plastic recycling superpower instead of just driving production to other places and paying them to import their goods. So you're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Canadian Member of Parliament PI, Poilevre. Uh, pleasure to talk to you. And one of the most entertaining follows on social media in terms of uh, Anglosphere politicians, I think, who, who speak for a lot of us who can't be in those chambers or rooms uh, or locked in your offices, whatever it might be. Uh, I have a question here about inflation. Uh, you put out a, yes. a video not long ago about the inflation tax. I think it's something that many consumers don't necessarily understand. It's it's very high-winded. It's up in the clouds. Could you explain a bit what you mean by inflation tax and how you think the current government is leading Canadians astray on that? Well, the inflation tax is one of the oldest tricks in the book for emperors, kings, dictators, prime ministers, and presidents. I mean, nobody like nobody likes taxes, and therefore leaders don't like to be caught raising them. Uh, but by contrast, leaders love to spend other people's money. Um, so in the olden days, uh, what uh, kings and emperors used to do is just create more cash uh, in order to spend it. Uh, so, for example, I think of the of Henry VIII. Um, he is known for beheading his subjects, but he was also known for clipping his coins. Um, and um, most famously, he became known as Old Coppernose. And that was because he was trying to make more and more British pounds. And a British pound at that time was actually a pound of silver. But he ran out of silver because he was making so many British pounds. So what did he do? He melted them down and he reminted them entirely full of copper with a tiny layer of silver on the outside to trick his subjects into thinking that they were still getting a silver pound. But what would happen is his face was on, on the coin and it faced outward rather than in a profile view. And what is the, what, what comes out the most, what protrudes the most, his nose. And so his nose would run again, rub against the inside of people's pockets and money sacks. And the rest of his face would remain silver, but his nose would be exposed as copper. So you'd have the silver face and a red copper nose. Uh, the silver face was like the mask that a bank robber would wear when he's stealing from a bank. Well, this was the mask, the silver mask that a king was wearing when he was robbing his people. Uh, and of course, what happened is that the silver content went down by about 87% and prices in British pounds went up by about 87%, right? Because you had more coins chasing fewer goods. Well, the same thing happened uh, in the Weimar Republic in the 1920s when they printed cash. Uh, you needed a, a, a wheelbarrow full of cash to buy a loaf of bread. You needed to order all your beer when you first got to the bar because by the end of the night, beer prices would be more expensive. Uh, and, and in more modern sense, in the 1970s, we saw Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, and Richard Nixon and others print money, and they caused massive inflation, which led to higher interest rates. Right now, uh, we are experiencing 10-year highs in overall inflation, uh, the biggest housing price increases in Canadian history. Um, and that has coincided with the central bank increasing the money supply in Canada by $350 billion dollars. Uh, that is a 20% increase, the biggest increase since 1974. Um, it began in March 2020 and continues right through to the present. And they've done it by buying up government debt in order to allow Trudeau to borrow money that he never would have been able to, to 
get on normal lending markets because no one would lend them that much money. And so the increase in the money supply has driven up asset prices and is beginning to drive up CPI consumer prices as well. Uh, the result, of course, is a, a, a massive wealth transfer from the working class wage earner to the wealthy uh, capitalist asset holder. If you own assets, uh, and, and, you know, big valuable assets, well, you've gotten a lot richer because those assets have, have inflated in price. But if you just live off your wages, well, your wages are shrinking in real inflation-adjusted value, so you've had a pay cut. So what the inflation tax does, in addition to raising cash for the government, is it inflates the price of the things the rich own and that the poor must buy. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, as I've been following this, it, the conversation has shifted. It was first, inflation isn't happening. Then it was, inflation is just transitory, right. guys. It's just transitory. It's going to yeah. come and it's going to go. And now we're starting to see like the realization of, oh, it's here. And we're gonna it's gonna be maintained and it's gonna be reasonable and we're somehow not we're not gonna have to raise rates that bad. It's not gonna be that bad. Um so it's just one of those things where we're kind of slowly seeing this play out in real time as um some of us, with yourself included, have kind of forecasted. Um another issue that that is it's related to the inflation discussion, but it's it's one of the ones that I haven't seen many really carry the banner for is housing prices. Um, it, it, I mean, I, I crunched some numbers today. I'm in the greater Toronto area and a, a house down the street from me or around the corner um, from, from where we rent uh, essentially outperformed the top performing hedge fund from 2018 until to, today. So if you had money and you put it down as a down payment and you gave it to the, the most powerful hedge fund in the world, You'd be poorer today with your money with that hedge fund than you would be otherwise if you had been able to buy that house. And for me, as someone who would maybe one day like to own a house, it just feels so um, discomforting because there's just no way, unless your wages skyrocket, there's no way to really get there. And so I wanted to pick your brain on what the federal government can do to help curb this issue of, of kind of runaway housing prices and that 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 disparity and that gap between those who can afford and those who will probably never be able to afford a house. Well, it's not what the government can do. It's what the government must stop doing. Uh, the government is not failing to respond to rising housing prices. It is causing rising housing prices. Uh, the culprit is money printing. Uh, that's the main federal culprit. And I can prove it by looking at the data and the charts. So which, this is what's interesting. In March and April of 2020, when COVID hit, housing prices went down. And they were on a sharp tra downward trajectory. The major housing insurer in Canada, CMHC, predicted that the housing prices would drop 10 to 14%. And why wouldn't they? If the GDP is drop, you know, the GDP dropped by five and a half percent. We lost $120 billion of economic activity in 2020. You would expect that the result would be lower housing prices. People have less wages with which to buy houses. There's higher unemployment, which means fewer people could qualify for a mortgage in the first place. Uh, you would just assume that housing prices would drop. But the government started printing money. And it was only after that printed money hit the market 
that price prices reversed and started going back up. So you have uh, March and April prices drop, all the central bank money pours in and they turn the prices turn around and start going back up. Uh, and just for some symmetry here, from April 2020 to April 2021, mortgage lending went up by 41% and housing prices went up by 42%. So that can't be a coincidence. Now, why did mortgage lending go up by 42%? Well, it's because they were printing money and the money goes straight into the financial system. And right now, the 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 because mortgages are insured by the government, it's the a zero risk place for banks to lend out. If you're a banker and you have to choose between lending to an over uh, to, to someone to buy a million dollar home they can't afford, but which is backed up by government insurance, or to lend to a small business that would create jobs and long-term productivity, you're, there's no debate about it. You'd give the you'd lend the money to the homeowner because even if he defaults, the bank the government through CMHC is going to back you up. So you got a zero. You've got a zero risk rate of yeah, return. Yeah, you don't get left holding the bag. And um, what, what is effectively happening with CMHC, which is the second part of this, frankly, the scam, is that the homeowner gets the premium, the bank gets the profit, and the taxpayer gets the risk. Uh, the banks are the, are the only entity in the world that I'm aware of that gets to have insurance with no deductible and no premium. The premium is paid by the home buyer and the entire loss is paid by the taxpayer with no deductible for the insured party, which is the banks. So this is like a perfect system. And we don't, the Europeans don't have this. The Americans are getting away from it because it's a massive trillion dollar moral hazard. Whenever you separate risk and reward, uh, then you get massive risk taking. Right? Because people say, I, I don't have the risk. I just get the profit. So then you t imagine, imagine if I said to you, I'm going to insure all your losses on the stock market. Well, you just dump everything into the riskiest stocks possible because you, that, you might profit. And if you lose everything, it's on me, right? So that's essentially what we have in our housing system right now. Uh, and you combine the fact that we're printing money, uh, the moral hazard of, of uh, protecting financial institutions from loss, and what do you get? Massive, unsustainable mortgage lending that will result in a debt crisis down the road. Yeah, yeah. Collectivizing private losses, which is about as as bad as it gets in terms of government policy. Thank you very much, Pierre, for joining us on Consumer Choice yeah. Radio. It's been a pleasure. We'll have you on again shortly. Great to be with you, David. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 AM and The Big Talker. 106.7 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, we just had a great conversation with Member of Parliament Pierre Polyev. Um, great to have him on the show. Certainly going to have to have him back uh, on the show at a later date. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as always, we say to all of our listeners, if you have someone you want to hear from and you want us to uh, chat with, um, be sure to email us or tweet us. Um, because we're we're looking to build that Rolodex of uh, exciting people that we can have on as guests. And let's just go back, David, because I think you know we don't often um, harp on this or, or try to go into it. Uh, I think we've had now this is our 80th program uh, that we've put together 
uh, here at Consumer mm-hmm. Choice Radio. It's been a uh, fun while. It's going to continue on, continue growing, continue going out to other stations, other partnerships. And the number of guests that we've had on, uh, there are many circumstances where we've had recommendations of various guests. And it's like, look here, bro, right here on the YouTube <laughs> or right here on the podcast feed. Uh, we've been able to have a good number of people on. Um, we did have Bjorn Lumborg on, and I was able to play some clips of that on our uh, EU affiliated podcast, The Consumer, uh, that Bill Vietz, our colleague, usually hosts. So that was great. And then just going back through the archives of our early guests, I mean, we've had MEPs now. Uh, we've had different people who are the heads of the FCC. We've had all types of interesting entrepreneurs and investors. Jerry Butine came on for Making a Murderer. Um, are there any Steve others? Forbes. Steve Forbes. Are there any others that kind of speak to you that we probably haven't highlighted lately? Because we've just been churning out show after show after show for uh, yep. about a year and yeah, a half. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, as I said, great interview. If you have any um, recommendations for us, let us know. Um, but, yeah, yeah, what else did you have on the docket for today's show um, outside of Cuba? And, 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 um, yeah, what's what is grinding your gears? Now we, we yeah, we we ideally we would be able to get on a plane and go down there and, and help these guys out, but uh we'd probably be seen as uh, you know, terrible outsiders. Probably not a good idea. But uh yeah, there's a couple things that that we've kind of seen hit the transom. Let's um we did a little bit of Canada heavy content there uh with uh our second segment. I would like to return to that. One very quickly that I'd like to talk about and discuss is there something that's floating through the Congress in the United States? And that would be a proposal to nationalize a kind of credit reporting or credit score. This is um, interesting. This is just coming out in the last couple of days. Interesting. The idea is before the House Financial Services Committee, and the idea would be to create a government credit score uh, that would apparently use more equitable terms and uh, conditions for calculating your credit score. Uh, So just so you guys know how it works, essentially you have different factors, your payments to credit card companies, um, how often you've made those payments, um, basically if you've had any derogatory marks, if you've had hard credit checks, these kind of things, these things all impact your score and make it possible for you to get loans, to buy a home, to buy a car, uh, many other things, including insurance. And the, this proposal aims to get rid of the private companies that do it right now. There are three larger companies. There's Experian, there's TransUnion, and I don't remember the third one. doesn't matter. <laughs> there are all these private companies have been providing you know, various versions of these scores. And the idea now is the government would like to replace that with their own that would have more equitable measures. Now, I don't know what that means exactly. But if we know anything from China and the social score, that tends to scare me a little bit if we have the government in charge of setting uh, who is worthy or not of credit. Yeah, it's, I mean, it also begs the question of, is it necessary? Um, And so I haven't heard enough of the arguments in favor of it. But generally, when someone suggests that the government do something, my, my first reaction is, whoa, 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 hold your horses. Is there any evidence that this is necessary? Um, is it a real problem? Is it something that could be solved without the government doing it? Um, I'm, not the, I'm not the biggest fan of, like, 
taking the DMV model and applying that to other <laughs> other services. That your are your instinct is is on point. <laughs> I, think, I think that's true. Where they they really have tried to underscore some of what they call market failures are just in errors that appear on credit reports. Um, oftentimes, if people have a similar name or um, identity theft, if someone uses you know your social insurance number, social security number. And uh, they're able to take out a loan or take out a credit card. There's that. And the idea, this is an idea, I haven't seen much uh, sort of statistics on this, that uh, minorities perhaps would not get a fair shake by many of these scores. Um, A lot of people are using these FICO scores. So that would impact their ability to buy cars or get a home or other credit cards. Now, I haven't seen any data like that. It's definitely uh, rhetoric that has emerged Uh, But for the idea to be that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is a federal agency, would then be in charge, for me, I'm just a bit apprehensive because we're talking about a governmental agency that will then have access to your credit history, will be calculating a score based on measurements that they come up with, some kind of rubric. And, you know, what happens if you happen to be someone that, uh, you know, is a loudmouth on social media. Does that mean you shouldn't be able to get a car loan? You know, what if you shared the wrong video on your Facebook feed? What if you, you know, wrote a letter to your congressman that was a bit angry about something that was happening? Does that mean that your your ranking is going to be affected? Is this going to, you know, then extend to everything that we do in society? So you're not able to get any type of loan. You're not able to have any type of private transaction. All of that seems very problematic to me. I would hope that we can continue to keep a very competitive environment, not have the government crowded out. Uh, but that is something that uh, really, really grinded my gears uh, this week. And I, I hope we can yeah. do a bit more investigation into that. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. But the way I which I would describe this is if you're if you're a right leaning listener, um, this is pr- predominantly for our American listeners, but um, if you're a Republican, um, just envision this this program under the oversight of AOC or Elizabeth Warren. And then if you're maybe more Democrat-leaning, think, oh, I want the Donald Trump administration to oversee my credit score. Um, if that makes you kind of hesitate, well, then maybe this is not the greatest of ideas. <laughs> because you have to remember any any additional oversight or power um, that you're going to give federal regulators under the Biden administration um, are going to exist with whoever is next. And whoever is next could be someone you really don't like. Um, in many instances, people are thinking Ron DeSantis um, and a handful of other uh, Republican congressmen or senators or governors. Um, so just remember that it, as as the wise man Yael Osowski once said, the pendulum does swing both ways. Wow, I love that guy. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to <laughs> shift back to a Canadian consumer concern. Um, this is actually a chart uh, that I saw put together by, mm-hmm. I think it's called Ten, Ten Efficient, and it compares basically the cost of one gigabyte of mobile data. And we see that Canada has come out on top, David, for the most expensive mobile data market in the world. Yep. Yeah, we're So we're what the worst. is going on here? 
uh, apart from from what we hear of all the you know the rosy things that are coming from Ottawa from the CRTC, what is going on? Why is it so expensive? It's got to be more than just it's a big country. Yeah, I mean, people will say, "Oh, it's a big country and it's sparsely populated," and it's like, yeah, no, um, not really. I mean, yes, it is a big country, um, but we're talking about rates in highly concentrated areas as well so it's not like canada is a country of um of farmland and everyone is is kind of dispersed evenly across the country we have world-class cities like toronto and vancouver and montreal and calgary and um so the idea that we're just some vast nation and it's hard to connect everybody is is just seems silly to me um, it's really because we have like an oligopoly that controls the market. Um, and they do a very good job of drumming up fear of competition whenever other companies look to enter the space. I mean, for people listening, it wasn't that long ago that there were advertisements on the radio. It felt like every five minutes um, when Verizon was considering to come to Canada, and you would hear these just nauseatingly silly um, advertisements about how this big American company isn't going to care about Canadian consumers, and how can we let Verizon um, take over, and the Americanization of the Canadian telecom industry. And it's like, guys, I I don't care where the company is from. I just want better service, and I want better prices, and how many people, Yael, do you and I know who are American, uh, or sorry, who are Canadian or dual citizen, who get a U.S. number and stick with that because it's cheaper to pay the roaming fee on a U.S. cell phone and live and work in Canada than it is to get the same plan from a Canadian provider? Um, oh, yeah. Plenty. And so that, hi- that highlights to you right there that things are backwards if... If you if it's cheaper for you to use your phone um, in another country under the same like terms of whatever your package is, um, that goes to show you that that something bad is happening. Something something is wrong. And that's crazy to think also that we're in a, a more digital age. We have smartphones. A lot of people are doing more Wi-Fi calling, and still these rates are exorbitant. And, you know, I, I, I go back to 2013. I wrote an article uh, about that, David, in Canada, and it was, it was actually called the Fair for Canada campaign, uh, where they're trying to keep out Verizon. It was uh, apparently organized by many of the unions of Bell, Rogers, and TELUS, uh, sort of the big three there. And it's always been an issue in, in Canada. And to think that I'm actually going to offer this uh, to you, David, I've got Google Fi. I use Ooh. that in the U.S. It's, it's a great service. It actually provides free uh, data th- use throughout the world. And uh, phone calls, I believe, in Canada and the U.S. are free. Um, so so let's talk after the program and see if yeah. we can get you a number. I uh, hope you're okay with a, a North Carolina area code. But uh, <laughs> it's this kind of stuff that you know we see so much innovation that's happening. And, and actually, the cheapest prices are not even in the U.S. They're actually in Europe. Um, Austria, for instance, where I live now has, you know, plans that essentially are about four or five euros a month, uh, and you have 20 gigabytes of data or unlimited 
I mean, it's it's next level, and we just have not seen this in Canada. There are a lot of rules and regulations. This oligopoly that you mentioned has been in place. They don't want to have any kind of competition, no other competitors. Uh, there's definitely a lot of locking out of people who would like to innovate. I know there have been a couple new carriers who've tried to come out, but they always need to use uh, you know the big threes stations mm-hmm. and and lines and everything else and it's it's not been fun for canadian consumers no. so uh, definitely a, a bad example here of, of how government policy can go awry yeah yeah let's hope for some more competition there at some point i mean we talked a little bit about joe biden's um like his his new stance on competition and he's looking at some good things like occupational licensing it would be nice if Trudeau were to take that same approach and go, "Hey, what are what are some barriers to our recovery, and let's let's get rid of those." But I don't think he has the the I don't think he has it in him to. Uh, to he doesn't have the gusto. One. No, yeah. yes, he doesn't have the gusto. Um, uh, you know, it could also be he's not hearing from the right people. You know, and that's why it's great for us to be able to interview. Uh, some of the the people who are in political circles or business circles who provide an alternative narrative, I think that's important. It's always been a great pleasure to be at the microphone and and have that here, David. And uh, I would encourage listeners to go to our website, consumerchoiceradio.com, where we have plenty more interviews. Uh, Please do subscribe to the podcast version on our website if you'd like to hear us, not just here on the radio, uh, but also all week long. So David, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Um, let's chat uh, next week. How about it? Yep. Thank you all for joining us. And until next week, uh, we'll talk to you then. Well, I sit up screaming at the kid in the sand. The land is just an upper dump hole. Had a good time. Let face go. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science, Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on consumerchoiceradio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
Hallelujah. Glory. 